It's 10 p.m. Do you know where your children are? The evidence was circumstantial, and the prosecution brought Wayne Williams to trial for two of the 28 killings. Apartments on Buford Highway, where we now have new developments in the ongoing investigation of the Centennial Park bombing. General Robert Abrams, for the first time, and officially calls the Tawana Brawler story a lie. At a press conference this morning, Seattle Police Chief Robert Hansen announced a special task force being formed to study Ted Bundy. Join us now as we go beyond criminal headlines. And I'm your host for Beyond Criminal Headlines, Nicole Bennett. Nine years later, the mystery behind the murders of Russell and Shirley Dermond on Georgia's Lake Oconee still confounds authorities. But could new technology and the efforts of a private lab finally helped solve this case. Last fall, I spoke with Mark Winnie, an investigative reporter for WSB-TV in Atlanta, who's extensively covered the Dermot murders. And you can find that episode in this week's show notes. But to mark the nine-year anniversary, I wanted to revisit the investigation. So for those of you who haven't listened to that episode, here's a refresher. Russell and Shirley Dermond, an elderly couple, lived for 15 years inside the Reynolds Great Waters gated community in Eatonton, Georgia. And Eatonton is a little over 70 miles southeast of Atlanta on the banks of Lake Oconee, as I mentioned, and that's in Putnam County. Russell, a retired clock manufacturing executive and fast food franchisee, was last seen on May 1st. 2014 running errands around town. Just five days later, on May 6, when Russell and Shirley never showed up to a friend's Kentucky Derby party, the couple's neighbors called 911 to report a gruesome discovery. The body of Russell Dermond, who was 88 years old at the time of his death, was found inside the garage of the couple's 3,200-square-foot home, slumped behind one of their cars. There was something else, though. And this was the detail that would propel this case into national headlines. Russell Dermond had been decapitated and his head was nowhere to be found. Shirley Dermond, who'd been married to Russell for 62 years, was also missing. Her body would surface 10 days later, discovered about five miles from the home by a couple of fishermen on Lake Oconee. Shirley's body had been weighed down with 30-pound cement blocks. An autopsy later revealed that Shirley Dermond, who was 87 at the time of her death, was killed by two, possibly three blows to the head with a blunt object. So at first, the murders appeared to be the work of professionals. And Putnam County Sheriff Howard Sills said he initially thought, again, at the very beginning of his investigation, that the beheading was meant to send a message but the FBI couldn't find any connections to the Dermans in any of their investigations. And as far as we know, the couple had no known enemies. And this was a question raised in an article that I read in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I thought it was interesting. Would seasoned killers take the risk of transporting Shirley Dermans' body, which they clearly didn't want discovered, onto a public lake? So Sheriff Sills said as the investigation got underway, he ruled out the professional hit theory, and he agreed 
he doesn't think professionals would take the time to transport Shirley's body, especially onto a public lake, or to decapitate Russell Dermott. His observation was that Mr. Dermott was most likely shot. There was gun residue on his collar indicating that he was shot, and the sheriff believes his head was removed because the killers knew the bullet could be traced. Russell's head has never been found. Every resident close to the Dermans in the Reynolds Great Waters neighborhood has been questioned over the years and cleared of any involvement in the case. The Dermans had four children. In 2000, their oldest son, Mark, was killed in Atlanta in a drug deal gone wrong. Investigators haven't found any connection between that crime and Russell and Shirley's murders, which again, their murders happened in 2014, 14 years after their son, Mark, was killed. Their other children, two sons in Florida and a daughter in North Carolina, all passed polygraphs, two of which were administered by the FBI, and nothing links them to the crimes. My source for this week has interviewed one of the Dermans' surviving sons multiple times over the years. And speaking of my source for this week, it's a new perspective on this investigation, someone who's also extensively covered the Dermans case, and that is esteemed journalist Karen Greer. Karen joined WSB-TV in Atlanta last fall and currently anchors Channel 2 Action News at 5 p.m. every night. She has served in the Atlanta market, though, as an anchor and investigative reporter for more than 30 years. She's a past president of the Atlanta Press Club and now serves on the Board of Governors for the National Academy of Television Arts and Sciences. Karen is the recipient of 10 Southeast Emmy Awards, two awards from the Atlanta Association of Black Journalists, and a Salute to Excellence Award from the National Association of Black Journalists, just to name a few of her accomplishments. And we connected for an interview about the Dermans case this month, but wound up touching on multiple cases that Karen has covered over the years, even some that she'd like to discuss on future episodes of Beyond Criminal Headlines. Karen joined me virtually from right in the heart of the WSB-TV newsroom, so you'll hear that in the background. Again, me as per usual in my podcast studio at home, but Karen right in the heart of the newsroom. And before we unpack the latest in the investigation into the murders of Russell and Shirley Dermond, I asked Karen to walk us through the days leading up to May 6th, 2014 for the couple. Here's what she had to say. Well, Nicole, the Dermans were supposed to be going to a fun derby party with their friends and their neighbors, and the neighbors did not hear from them. They did not see them. Um, they had RSVP to be there, and they did not make it. So they started getting worried, called, didn't get an answer. So one of them went to their home, which is in a very quiet, beautiful, uh, tranquil subdivision uh, right there at Lake Oconee, uh, Reynolds Plantation to be exact, and that's when a gruesome discovery was made of Mr. Derman's body, um, minus his head. He had been decapitated. There was a lot of blood there. Um, it was in the garage area, and so that's when they called 911. And did they, I mean... So describing that scene, I cannot imagine 
you know, they don't show up to this Kentucky Derby party. Neighbors felt like something was wrong. And then to find that, I mean, I just can't even really wrap my mind around what was what was the initial scene like um, and what initially did authorities say stood out to them right away? Because they found Mr. Derman's body and initially they they did not find Shirley Derman's body. Is that correct? That is correct. Found Mr. Derman's body outside uh, in the garage area, uh, called authorities. They came in, they searched. They said the house did not look like it had been disturbed. Didn't look like anyone went in and started rambling, looking for anything. So they said no signs of forced entry, which I thought was very peculiar as well. Um, her body nowhere in that house. They said it was very neat, very clean. Um, so they were confused as to where she could have been. It wasn't until 10 days later that her body surfaced um, about seven miles or so from the home in the lake behind their home. Her feet had been bound with concrete blocks uh, like someone wanted her to um, not surface for a while. They were searching the water, um, didn't find her, and then some fishermen happened upon uh, her body there in the lake. And when, after that, so they find Mr. Derman's body's beheaded, then they find Shirley 10 days later, like you said, weighted down with cinder blocks. Clearly someone did not want her to be found so when did the FBI get involved and and why? I mean, I feel like I've I've heard in true crime, it's protocol in cases this gruesome, this heavy. Let's see if there are any connections to other serious crimes. But when when did they get involved? And do you remember when your coverage first started where this case is concerned? Well, um, I remember talking to the sheriff early on, Sheriff Howard Seals, and he really didn't early on think this was um, a crime that they really needed to go outside and, and search. They, you know, had some of the materials, the towels, things like that uh, from the scene. They talked to people in the area. So it was a while before the FBI was initially called in. And I think it was after um, they realized his head had not been found and they did not have many leads in this case. And we have to remember how many years ago it's been now and how technology has changed. So things that are available now were not available to them then. So they were going on good old fashioned police work at the time, hoping to get some leads, questioning, looking around. But since then, uh, they've been able to work with the FBI and do geo-tracking uh, to see whose phone may have pinged in that area uh, at that time, which definitely is something that was not available almost a decade ago. So they got some leads on that, made some calls, questioned some people. Um, and then as of late, uh, there's even more new technology, which looks at DNA. And they're able to get some of the DNA from those towels to see who may have touched it, um, who else's fingerprints could have been there. So that is something they're hoping can give them some new leads in this case. And we're expecting that to come back anytime now. 
but we talked to the the son, uh, the German son, and um, you know he definitely was baffled. Um, had no idea, no information. People had questions. So they always trying to say it's family, but this was so brutal. Uh, there were stories out there that this was a professional hit of some kind. But when I talked to the sheriff, he said, you know, they were of, um, they didn't have great means. They didn't have, you know, millions of dollars. They weren't the people that would have something like that. So um, I think the Rolex uh, that one of them owned was still in the house, things of that nature. So it kind of tossed out um, that kind of crime syndicate kind of hit. But when you see someone beheaded and someone else weighted down with, you know, concrete senders, you, you wonder who would do something so brutal and who would do this? So there's still a lot of questions out there. So many questions. And, and like you pointed out, um, I, I remember talking to Mark Winnie also from WSB TV, and he said the same thing. Sheriff Sills has been pretty adamant that this wasn't professional and that the beheading could have been because Mr. Derman was shot. They didn't want anyone to be able to trace, uh, the bullet that was used. Um, so that, that in mind and no known enemies, I had read, if we're kind of sussing through theories that came up, so they had a son, Mark, who died, um, was murdered in a drug deal gone wrong in 2000. Did anything come of that lead that this may have been some kind of revenge killing for that murder? Yeah. Sheriff Sell says he does not think so. Um, he thinks this is simply a matter of uh, a case, brutal as it may be, where someone is going to speak out and tell somebody else about it. Um, someone knows something and he's hoping they will come forward. He does not think it had anything to do with any prior family situations. Um, and, and it's so bizarre since we've gone back to see someone else has bought the house, you know, they're moving on with their lives. And nine years later, still no answers. And who could have done this and why? And is that person out there? Because if you visit that community, it's, it's very small and tight. You know, they all know each other. So you've got to think they were getting ready for a party. Someone would have seen someone come in and out of that house and move her body out of there and into a boat. Uh, because we got into a boat and the docks that are behind there, someone would have to see something unless it was late at night, um, unless it was earlier than the party. Maybe it happened the day before. We just can't tell right now because of the DNA testing that they're working on. And then the lab that we understand they're using, um, Authorum Labs, they have been able to solve several cases all over the country, including several here in Georgia with finding DNA evidence. Um, and a lot of times what they do is they link it to, if they get the DNA hit, um, we do all those tests with um, 23andMe and all of that. They're able to um, locate people who may have known people with that same DNA. It's, it's amazing how this all works. So um, as I said, they're hoping to get that information back to the FBI very soon. And I would hope in this year, their family could have some type of closure in this and know that um, they know who's responsible for these brutal murders. 
Absolutely. And it is like you said, we saw that, I think it was with the Golden State Killer out in California. Um, It is incredible what they're doing with family and familial DNA now, you know, it's, it's just incredible. Um, and I, I wanted to make sure I asked you too. So you mentioned towels that were at the crime scene that I know Sheriff Sills has said are very important to the overall case. So can you tell us, I think you're, you're referring to where they found near Mr. Dermond. Is that right? Okay. So what, what do you think, um, the towels and, and any other evidence, what do you think has had the most impact on the investigation overall? I think it was interesting. Sheriff Sill said he thought that the killer or killers were going to come back. And he thought that because of the towels to clean up, um, they had been put around the door so as not to seep out the blood to seep out onto the street or, you know, under the door. And so he says he still thinks that they were going to come back, clean up, take those towels, but they were not able to. I think that is going to be a huge piece of evidence that he is now able to test because their fingerprints have got to be on that. Um, The clothes Mr. Dermot was wearing, uh, perhaps he can get something from that. Mrs. Dermot, those uh, concrete blocks that were tied onto her body, those are also things that can be tested now. Even though they were in the water, it's amazing. Um, the tests that can be done. Uh, Cheryl Mac McCollum, who is a crime scene investigator here in uh, the metro area, uh, has worked with a lot of agencies. And, and there are things... Uh, There's one that's like a vacuum that can vacuum uh, some of the DNA off of the items. Uh, We did a a show and tell, uh, so to speak, with some agencies here in Georgia to kind of show them some of this um, technology that is available. MVAC is what it's called, and the GBI utilizes it here. Uh, but there's only a few labs that, that have it and are able to use it. That now is, is being used to help solve cases that are decades old. So we're hoping that some of that evidence, which he had a lot of it, sent back to him in his office in boxes. He has stacks of boxes on this case. He said this case is his albatross. Um, he just does lie awake sometimes wondering when he's going to get the answers and be able to solve this because he knows this family needs closure and he wants to know if there's you know a killer in that community who, who would have done this and and why. I can only, I'm so chilling. And and I know that's, I was going to ask you to Sheriff Sills saying it's an albatross and he's been in law enforcement for more than 50 years now, or at least nearly 50 years. Last I checked, um, I was going to ask you, you know, what, what is he like? And I know you've interviewed him and spent probably a lot of time with him talking about this case. Um, he seems so determined almost a decade later. What is what is he like? What has it been like to talk to him over the years about this investigation in particular? He is amazing. He is such a hard worker. He is so dedicated to what he does. He has worked for decades in law enforcement, even in the metro Atlanta area, I think in DeKalb at one point. Um, so being in Putnam, uh, you would think it'd be a lot quieter, nothing like this going on. And then you have this case 
uh, which has been very tough for him. He's had a couple of other big ones. Remember the deputies who were transporting a prisoner who were killed in a transport vehicle. So he's, he's had his share of tragedy. But this is one of those cases that has not been solved, that he is determined, determined he is going to solve while he is the sheriff of Putnam. So he will hear something. He will, he said every now and then get a call about a tip and he follows them all through. But, you know, a lot of times he will just revisit those boxes in his office to see if there's anything else, any new tips, any leads that he might be able to follow up on that, that might give him some answers. And, and he's hoping this latest turn to a private lab, that this is going to be uh, the answer that he needs. And it's, it's like you said, too, I mean, we've seen it with small, tight-knit communities like this. It made me think of just now the Tara Grinstead case and where she's from being so tight-knit. And it really took technology. And then, honestly, in that particular scenario, just ex- exposure, yes, people talking, awareness. And fi- finally, we got suspects, leads, you know, actual substantial confessions. Um So we'll see what happens because, like you said, we have no witness reports, no surveillance footage. It's just mind-boggling, which leads me to my next question for you, having covered it. What are your thoughts on the case and the theories? And they've interviewed the kids. They, They all pass polygraphs. So what do you think is the most confounding piece of this case? And... I don't know I, if it's if it's a stretch to ask you what theory you think makes the most sense. Well, I asked Sheriff Sills everything that we could think of. Was there insurance money uh, that perhaps the family wanted, the son wanted? Was there um, some type of family connection to this? And he has interviewed them a gazillion times. He said no. There is no connection, nothing that he thinks would have uh, implicated the family. Um, Was there anything they could have done, something they could have come across? Can't imagine. Um, We're so often seeing these people come in to rob uh, elderly people. I mean, you think 89 years old. It was brutal. Could it have been someone that was doing work for them uh, that thought they had more than they had? And But the home wasn't in shambles. It wasn't like anyone went through drawers or cabinets looking for anything. And there were some things of value that were still in the house, uh, her jewelry, some of those things. So this case also has me baffled. Uh, mind you, I don't know all the facts that the sheriff has because I'm sure there's some things he's keeping close uh, to him to not tip anyone off, but from what we've been able to ask over the years, every anniversary that we go back and ask questions, we talk to the son. I think uh, the first time uh, one of our reporters talked to him about, you know, who he thought could have done it, no idea, couldn't think of any debts or anything like that that were owed. So this is one of those baffling cases. And, you know, usually we can 
come up with some answers, but not in this one. Um, there's another one that I'm working on with Cheryl with a family. A young girl was murdered at 21. It was believed that she may have been pregnant and that was part of it. Um, didn't have DNA evidence. I was up 26 years ago that that would have happened. But that DNA plays a huge role in all of these now. So we're hopeful that they are able to narrow something down and we will have some news to present before the end of the year. Absolutely. And is there anything as we touch on leads and and DNA evidence and geotracking and all of that? I mean, aside from technology that's available, is there anything we as the public can do that Sheriff Sills has asked in, in terms of information and things like that? Beyond criminal headlines, one of those things, podcasts like yours, having that opportunity to get the word out, to remind people someone may have been in that area, someone may have told them about a case where they did something like this. That has happened too, where people have spoken up and made that call. And he's hoping that by doing things like your podcast, people will get out there and get the word out. Um, you may remember a coworker of mine, Donna Lowry, um, when we were uh, together at another station in town, her stepdaughter was murdered. Uh, she just had a baby and the baby was left right there lying in her mom's blood. She is now 20 three years old. It has been 22 years. They were able to connect the dots and find out who was responsible because one of the guys that committed the hit, as it was said by police, told his girlfriend, told her what happened. And then there was another woman that was holding the baby while this was happening. So they, they came forward and talked and it ended up being um, the father-in-law who was arrested, is in prison right now, um, and charged with organizing the murder of his daughter-in-law because he didn't approve of his son marrying her. Um, but it was people speaking out and speaking up, and that helped solve that case because they really had no leads in that one either. No one saw him come in. No one saw what happened. There were no sounds. And the baby was sitting there and had to be raised by, you know, Someone else, Donna. 22 year. I mean, that's, it's incredible. I'm so happy that they have some sense of closure now, but I just, I cannot imagine. And that's something uh, I had just interviewed someone about Samuel Little. And she was saying, you know, exactly what you just said. A lot of it is about not letting these victims lose their voice not letting things go silent, you know, or cold and talking about it, continuing to talk about it. So hopefully the same sense of closure can be reached for the Derman family eventually, um, sooner, ra sooner rather than later. And that being said, I, I always like to end when we talk about what's happened to the victims or, you know, a serial killer or the perpetrator, I feel like the victims do get lost a little. Um, so I always like to end with just a question about them. And in all the interviews you've done, how has the family said they'd want the Dermans to be remembered? Definitely as 
an amazing couple that always helped others, believed in giving back in their community, were wonderful neighbors, uh, great friends, family. They were retired. They were in their dream home ready to live out the rest of their glorious years and to be taken in this brutal manner is something that no one can imagine or would have wanted for them or for anyone else. So to think of them uh, as we move on in our days as an amazing couple who deserve none of what they received and to try and help get some closure, you know, ask those questions. If you live in that community, Maybe think about this again. Try and see who may have been there in that area, who may have known something. If you ever ran into them on the streets in Putnam, you know, remember how wonderful a couple they were, which is everything we heard about them. Um, but I know there's so many cases like this all over the country, not just here in Georgia. So it's important to bring these out. I, I love things like CrimeCon now. I've, I've been there and been a part of it and presented cases. And the last case we presented, people had some great tips. Uh, we were able to give police new information in that case, and uh, it was solved. Uh, that was a little girl who was walking to school and uh, had forgotten her project. She was with her sisters. They took a shortcut. She went back through the shortcut, was shot in the head and um, raped. Um, she was 10 years old. That is hard to imagine. But this is another reason why it's important to help people just get some answers, whatever they need to do. Let law enforcement know there are other new developments out there. Some are not used to them and don't know about them. So it's important for podcasts like this, because you know lawmakers listen to it, to give them that information. And let them know, oh, maybe I can try that. Oh, that's a good idea. The labs that are out there, amazing. Um, but I enjoy, will enjoy talk, coming to talk to you again with Cheryl about some of the things that uh, we've been talking about and working on. And one that could perhaps go to court within the next two months or so. And that's where we'll leave off with a great tease for what's ahead. I cannot wait to have Karen on the podcast again. And Cheryl McCollum, who, as Karen mentioned, is an Emmy Award winning crime scene analyst, as well as the founder and director of the Cold Case Investigative Research Institute. Karen told me Cheryl, of course, has incredible insight into the Derman murder investigation, but also countless other cold cases. So be on the lookout for an episode featuring Cheryl and Karen very soon. And keep in mind, I spoke with Karen a little over a week ago. So as headlines change and we get developments in the Derman case, I will keep you as updated as possible. It's Karen's understanding that this is the only homicide in Putnam County Sheriff Howard Sills' entire career in which he's had principal responsibility that remains unsolved. And I've reached out to Sheriff Sills as well. So hopefully we'll hear from him soon. This is Beyond Criminal Headlines. My name is Nicole Bennett. Every few weeks, you'll be able to find new episodes on any of your favorite podcast providers featuring conversations between myself and experts who've investigated some of the most notorious crimes in our history. And you can follow the podcast on Facebook. It's at Beyond Criminal Headlines. 
feel free to send me ideas for cases that we can cover in upcoming episodes. And don't forget, wherever you're listening right now, give the podcast a follow, rate, review, subscribe, all that good stuff so you don't miss an episode. I hope you learned something from this week's episode featuring the esteemed Karen Greer as we mark the ninth anniversary of the murders of Russell and Shirley Dermond. We'll be back again soon. Until next time, this is your host for Beyond Criminal Headlines, Nicole Bennett, signing off. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.